today's episode, we're switching from a regular programming to a special guest segment with Gary Chatteron, who's the Senior Vice President and Head of Retail Distribution at McKenzie, and his guest, Herman Brody. Herman is a behavioral finance specialist, founding director of Prospecta Limited, and the co-author of The Trust Manual. Over the past 20 years, Herman has worked with hundreds of financial services firms, providing education on the use of behavioral finance. Gary and Herman's conversation will explore the importance of building trust with clients, how financial advisors can navigate the complexities of their client relationships, and tactics to help advisors grow and establish further credibility. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. So this is a, this is a new experience. Excellent. I'm glad I'm here first. Yeah. <laughs> so you know what? Like when we start off the trust mandate, the importance of it, why clients choose you. It's a pleasure to be here, having this opportunity to sit down with you in person. As you said, Mm -hmm. usually when this happens, you're somewhere in the other part of the world, but sitting in front of you, having the opportunity to discuss, you know, it's it's really a pleasure to be here with you today. And it takes me back. I I, I mentioned it to you, and I don't know if we put a date on it, Mm -hmm. but do you recall the first time I would have met you, it was at Area Hotel, you were presenting for the Investment and Wealth Institute. Mm-hmm. Um, do you remember like how that, that must have been easily seven, eight years ago? That's a lot longer than I thought, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a, there's a time before COVID and time after COVID, and it seems that pretty much everything that was before COVID is almost a blur these days. It is a blur. Uh, it feels like it was a hundred years ago, or if sometimes you don't even think it really happened at all. Strange. So, you know, working with the Investment and Wealth Institute, I'm the co-chair of the Canadian Advisory Board. It's given me the opportunity to hear and engage with you in many different areas. And you've built an incredible reputation based on your research and thought leadership in empowering advisors on how to build trust with their clients. At McKenzie, this is one area that we are committed to in partnering with advisors in supporting the evolution of their business. This includes how they navigate the complexities of their client relationships. Now more than ever, we see there's an importance of building trust and competency. In today's episode, we're hoping to empower advisors with insights and tactics that you can share that can help support them in either growing or establishing further credibility with their clients. So let me start by asking you, why behavioral finance? The answer to that is quite simple, in fact, because there are so many challenges people in business face, especially in the financial services industry. And they seem to be challenges that everybody faces and they repeatedly face the same challenges over and over again without seeming to get across. And when that happens, you'll find that it's very often uh, a behavioral challenge. It's something to do with our human nature. We're asking people to do things which essentially go against their nature. And as a result, everybody seems to be affected and everybody seems to struggle to get across this hurdle. And when we're talking about investment or simple investment decision making, let me give you an example. Let's say that 
there is a prize draw. The prize is $100, okay? And I tell you, there's 100 tickets to this prize draw. Now you say, so every ticket's you know, worth a dollar, right? And I give you the opportunity to buy one of those tickets for 90 cents. Would you go for it? Of course, I would go for it. 90 cents. I said, okay, fine. Now I tell you that, um, okay, take the ticket, but you know, the owner of the other 99 tickets is me. Do you still want to buy that one for 90 cents? Now I have a problem. Now you have a bit of a problem. <laughs> and let me tell you, I only paid 70 cents for each one of mine. Now we have a bigger still, problem. Do you still want to buy that one for 90 cents? Probably not. Now, nothing changed in terms of the probability and the, the risk reward of that transaction. But in your mind, something changed. I mean, the focus of your attention changed. It went from you being the likely winner to suddenly I'm the most likely winner. And they struggle with the idea of fairness. It seems somehow unfair that I only paid 70 cents and you have to pay 90. And so, although as a financial professional, I'm sure you would still buy that ticket for 90 cents, but you do so through gritted teeth, right? And you probably wouldn't enjoy the experience as much as you would otherwise. Although, economically, nothing changed. And so, you see, even financial professionals sometimes have trouble in overcoming their humanity in order to do the right thing, the thing that makes economic sense. And it's precisely that reason why so many people struggle with the same sorts of problems over and over again. And that's the reason why I focus on, on human behavior and behavioral finance. That's amazing. When I was uh, studying for my master's, behavioral finance was very new and fresh in the early 2000s. And the levels it's come to is really here to help us as individuals make better decisions. Mm -hmm. So on that point, in your research on the trust mandate, incredible book, you state that the most important question for financial advisors is why does the client choose you? Can you start by expanding on why it's so important for financial professionals to cultivate this trust with clients? Mm -hmm. The whole reason we got into this area of research was actually a, a question from one of my clients. Uh, the client was a sales manager, uh, was looking to, was pitching for some new business, had a meeting with a potential client, meeting went very, very well, went through his pitch book, presented the team, presented some of their good ideas, everything was going swimmingly. And then the client in the end didn't choose them chose a firm which is across the street and he came to me and said well why did they why didn't they choose me you know we have much better performance than the other guys why didn't the client choose me and to be honest i didn't know the answer and i was pretty embarrassed in fact because i'd been 20 years or so in the financial services industry and to be honest i'd never really asked myself that question i just assumed just like everybody else I have the best performance, I have the best team, I have the best resources, the client is going to choose me. But it doesn't work that way. Obviously, it did not work that way, which means that I can assemble the best team. I can get together the best resources. I can have the, the most flawless processes. But if the client doesn't choose me, I don't have a business, do I? And it's, so a, it's, it's amazing because 
we do so much, uh, so much work on why we win and are more reticent to analyze why we have lost or not been selected. So that's an interesting dynamic. Yeah. And so we try to understand, you know, look at the research, did a meta research, look at all the evidence over almost 30 years into the reasons why funds flow to various uh, institutions and not to others. And we discovered that trust was the missing ingredient. So there was something that clients are always searching for, perhaps not even consciously, but they are looking for performance and resources and skills and, 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 and credibility. But at the same time, there is another uh, ingredient to that decision. They try to find out what the relationship is going to be like with this team, with these individuals. And the elements which go into that judgment are very often not related to the task at all. And so it's very important as a financial service professional, not only to show the client that, yes, I have the competence to be able to make good things happen, but I'm also motivated to make those things, those good things happen for you. And that is the critical ingredient. So what clients are really looking for are clues or to be able to make judgments about what this relationship is going to be like, whether that person is genuinely going to have my back, whether they are motivated to work in my best interest. You know, that's, that's interesting because you keep talking about that missing ingredient. I love food. I love mm -hmm. going to beautiful restaurants. And it's that perfect balance when you're combining ingredients that really bring it out. Mm -hmm. So when you think of that, what's the impact when we look at growth and retention in an advisor's build uh, business, if they're not really able to understand this and figure out a way forward. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, this is going to be a huge challenge if they don't. And I think this is increasingly the case when so much of the business is, in, uh, is moving. Some of the, the technical skills can be done a lot more easily where everybody can sort of reach the same level of technical competence in their service delivery, that that missing parts, which includes, you know, the, the demonstrating to the clients that they genuinely have their best interests at heart, is going to play an increasingly bigger role. When we did the research, and this is going back to 2018 when the book came out, so basically research up to 2018, things, hard factors like for fund managers, like age of the fund, size of the fund, you know, awards and so on, what we call, and fees, of course, these hard factors really only accounted for about a third of the selection decision. One third. I can imagine five years down the road that that is probably shrinking even further because everybody can deliver a certain level of competency. And so that missing two thirds is probably as much as three quarters now in terms of the selection decisions as well as termination decisions. That, that's an interesting perspective as we reflect back specifically on what's happening in Canada in the wealth management space. We have a conversation that tends to lean towards professional titles. It's, it's regulated. People are registered. There's proficiencies that are required. Mm -hmm. And we also have this obligation to act in the client's best interest. Now, there's no way, in my mind, just listening to you, the proficiency level it's not enough to maintain client trust. 
No, not by a long, long way. Because that is a kind of trust that pretty much everybody can have. I mean, in the book, we talk about three distinct levels of trust. At the very top, we have system trust. So advisors, asset managers, they're operating within a system that the clients generally trust, which means you have laws and regulations, and you have democratic institutions to defend those laws. And so if you operate in Canada, you are part of a system the client trusts. They'll give you your money. They may be afraid they're going to lose some through investments, but they're not afraid that the investment manager is going to steal it and, and run away into the <laughs> mist because they operate in a system that the client generally trusts. So you can compete with somebody perhaps in the Caymans or in uh, a low-income country who don't necessarily benefit from this. But if you are in Canada, um, you benefit from system trust. And there's a second level, which is role trust, which means that they believe that anybody who occupies this role, therefore has the education, uh, has the training, the certifications, for, is a financial advisor, or is a fiduciary, or is a wealth manager, that they have the skills to do this job. And it doesn't matter who you are, with those titles, you benefit from a certain level of role trust. Role trust. So if you want to compete with other people in that role, you just need to do that education to get that certification, and you will benefit from that role trust. Everybody has it. And then, and probably more importantly now, is what we call interpersonal trust. And this is the trust that one individual has in another specific individual. Which means that I can trust the system, but if I see in the newspapers that the regulators are doing a very poor job of regulating the industry, I can nevertheless trust McKenzie as a brand that I can leave my money. Let's say I read now, unfortunately, that even McKenzie has been caught up in some unsavory business. I can nevertheless say I trust Gary to take care of my money and to protect me because I have a level of interpersonal trust. And this is the most important kind of trust. This can survive even if trust breaks down on the role level or at the system level. And this is the kind of trust that we aim to cultivate. Without interpersonal trust, there would never have ever been any delegated asset management because somebody at some stage must have given their cash to somebody else to manage. And so that would never ever have existed. It's interesting. System, role, interpersonal. We hear the refrain in this industry, this is a relationship business. And that is so telling in the way you framed it and why when you have the system, then the role and the interpersonal, how the interpersonal can help support the other two and take you through more challenging periods. Mm -hmm. So with that, the question then becomes down. And it's kind of clear now that you say interpersonal. Why do people trust some people more than others? Uh, that very much depends. Now, at an outset of a relationship, the kind of things which create the foundation for a high trust relationship seem 
not to have anything to do with the task or not related to finance or investments or anything. It just has to do with the individual. Uh, I like to talk about vulnerability as being the essential foundation for a high-trust relationship. So somebody being willing to be vulnerable to the other. Uh, we expect our clients to be vulnerable to us, of course, but in fact, it's, there's a huge advantage coming with being a first mover in the vulnerability stakes. So if the advisor is willing to be vulnerable to the client, especially in those very early instances, what that signals to the client is the kind of relationship that this is going to be. So the client then realizes, oh, yeah, so this is going to be the kind of relationship where we're open and, and honest with each other, where we can, we can tell each other things in, in confidence. And, uh, and that's the kind of relationship that people find incredibly appealing. And they will typically reciprocate with a gesture of vulnerability of their own. And it's this state of mutual vulnerability, which is the foundation for high trust relationship. And I'm saying whether you are talking about personal relationships or uh, a business relationship, no high trust relationship has ever been created without somebody being willing to be vulnerable to the other. When relationships are more mature and long lasting, what tends to sustain them are um, a sense of shared values. So there is some sort of similarity between uh, the, the financial professional and the client. Now, those shared values, they can be anything, Gary. They could be social, they could be political, they could be cultural, sporting, religious. Well, you, you brought your name. You, you opened the door. Right. I have to jump in there with sporting. Is it, are you, are you a Man City fan? Like, who, who's your team? No, I'm not. I mean, sports would not bring me into a high trust relationship. But the thing is, what you have to do, the goal is to, you identify what are the client's values. I mean, they're all over the place. You go into a client's home, you'll see their values straight away. Uh, you see the way they talk, the things that they're interested. Discover what their values are. Scratch the surface a little bit. Then you look amongst your own values. And you look for an area where there's an overlap. Now, you don't fake a value that you don't have. It's pointless to say, I want to take some golf lessons because somebody told me that's the way to win clients. If that is not part of your values, you should better leave it because, one, fake values, it's not sustainable. And two, it's inauthentic. And inauthenticity will always reveal itself ultimately. But the range of values, like I've been telling you, are so wide, so huge. It's inconceivable that there are there is no sense of shared values somewhere. And that's all you have to do is to go there. Now, it could well be that you've done all of these things and you've looked amongst your values and there's absolutely no values that you share. In which case, that means that that client is probably not for you. And it's all right. To and say that's no. okay. That's okay if the client is not. Ev this is not a recipe to win every client. It's about having a better relationship with the clients that you you do have, and that's essentially the way that it it works. You know, we've been living, and we we talked at the beginning about this COVID fog and time. You know, what are some of the tactics advisors can use in building that level of trust with clients? Mm -hmm. Specifically now where we're kind of in an environment where the interpersonal face-to-face -face mm -hmm. is not as prevalent as it used to be. Is there still things you can do 
in a virtual world to build the same level of trust? Or do you think advisors are going to need to get back and become more face-to-face interpersonal with clients to achieve Mm -hmm. that level of trust? I have to confess that working remotely, uh, not having a face-to-face contact, it makes the detection of those shared values a lot more difficult. It becomes a lot more difficult to be vulnerable, for example. Um, Sometimes when you're sitting together with somebody, we maybe will stick to the script for a little while, but then we will see something or hear something or somebody will say something, we'll go a little bit off script. And it's in those unprompted moments sometimes that people do reveal their values. Very often when we're in a, a Zoom meeting, for example, you don't get those opportunities. And sometimes there can only be, you know, maybe two or three of us in a Zoom meeting, but they can only have one person speaking at a time. Whereas, you know, we can be in a group of, you know, seven or eight people and there's a one group talking and then we sit together, the two of us, and we have a little side conversation. You can't do this in Zoom. And in that side conversation, we reveal things about ourselves. We reveal some things about our, our faults, our fears, and our failures. These are the main source of these kind of vulnerability disclosures. And it's in those unscripted moments that we discover something about the other person that we can build on, where we discover just exactly those kind of shared values. So it can be achieved virtually, but we have to be more intentional about it. And when we do exercises uh, with some of our clients, whereby we deliberately put them into conversations with the goal of uncovering those shared values. And so we we tell them what conversation that they should have with one another. Um, And those questions is usually we deliver them in advance and we say, well, look, you ask the other person these questions. Uh, don't talk about football. Don't talk about, you know, the, the game on Saturday night. You talk about these questions. And those questions, they are pretty revealing, but still quite polite. Uh, I know that you're familiar with some of these uh, games <laughs> already. But to give you an example of the kind of questions that we ask, coming out of the game, there was one which said, um, tell me the ways that your parents have ruined your life. I don't uh, think yeah. we have a long enough time on the podcast. Uh, you ask a question like this, of course, it's going to, you're <laughs> going to get a, re, a response which is much more profound. Yeah. And I asked specifically you this question once. I said, well, you meet somebody for the very first time that you like. You're always afraid that you will do what? And again, you, Say get, the wrong a, thing. you, get, a, you get a response which is, much more profound than the usual chit-chat that you will get. And it's in those kind of situations that you can discover things about the other person and about yourself as well. And it creates then that foundation for mutual vulnerability. So yes, it is more difficult remotely to create the kind of environment for trust building, but it's still achievable. We just need to be a lot more intentional about it. We can't leave those things to chance. You know, I love this because we brought our team back, uh, our sales team back into the offices early last year. And it's something now in this industry that we're going to have to figure out in terms of advisor to client, advisor to their team, 
advisor to advisor, that pair kind of interaction and knowledge gathering, mm-hmm. and then advisor to the organizations they deal with. How trust is going to be built in this new environment? What we've seen is having people together, the camaraderie, the walking into the elevator and having the sidebar conversation are all opportunities to build trust that if someone was at home through Teams, would they have the ability to have that sidebar conversation where you get that extra bit of vulnerability? Mm -hmm. It's something that we've seen there's a tremendous value in. And if it's not, you truly have to be more intentional just to make sure you're inclusive when you're going through those interactions. Mm -hmm. So I think this just highlights the rapidly changing environment that advisors face today. And when you take uh, the COVID and the office, that's one area, but we have rising rates. Inflation has, has come back. You have challenges for investors that they haven't seen for many years. Investors are being faced with increasing concerns and likely looking to their advisors now for guidance in areas that they probably wouldn't have discussed over the last few years. What should advisors and wealth professionals keep in mind now as they're engaging in these conversations? Mm-hmm. Well, let's be clear that without risk, you don't need trust. So if I'm not vulnerable to you in any way, I don't need to trust you. Yeah, I don't need to trust you. If uh, I mean, there's a difference between having somebody to, um, you know, look after my you know, my, my car or look after my kids. These are two levels, different levels of, of trust are required here. If there's no risk, I, you know, I don't need trust. And there are a lot of businesses out there who survive quite well without trust. Uh, they can still do some business. If I'm just giving you a tiny fraction of my assets to manage, you just need to show me some, you know what you're doing, show me some cheap prices, we're good to go. But if I'm going to give you all of my assets to manage, you're going to need trust. So trust and risk go hand in hand. You don't need trust if there is no risk. What is happening, especially now today, is that people's perception of the risks out there is growing, undoubtedly. I think especially since COVID, people see the world as a hell of a lot riskier than they did before COVID. And as the risk that they perceive rises, so the demands for trust become greater and greater and greater. So it's more and more important to trust the other counterparty, which means that we have to work a lot harder on trust. And we also have to use those relationships to essentially keep the client's perceptions of the risk under control. So this, we're talking essentially about a lot of hand-holding, but a lot of explaining, a lot of education has to play a role here in order that the client's perception of the risk is really kept under control. But the demands from the client side for the kind of relationship, the kind of intense per interpersonal relationship is greater quite simply because the world seems a lot riskier than it was before. So the same level of exposure is generating more anxiety than it did before. And so this is the reason why I think trust is more important than it has ever been. And, you know, it's something you could actually see and feel in our society now. So I'm going to 
end off on one final question. Just in our dialogue, it came to my mind, the perception of trust. Advisors have a relationship. They're working to build trust with the client. And then there's this transition that the world is facing now of intergenerational wealth. Mm -hmm. Do you have any ideas or thoughts for advisors that are working with a family and there needs to be a dynamic where it's not only the parent they're dealing with, but they're dealing with two or three children that have very different concepts or ideas. How does the advisor who has the trust of the parents now engage to build trust with those client, uh, the children also? This is tricky. I mean, I'm not a, a, a financial advisor, so I've not really been in those kinds of situations. But it could well be that the relationship you have with a second generation, it, you cannot replicate the relationship you had before with another. And it could well be that you really need second generation advisors as well to be able to take over those relationships. Because once again, long lasting relationships are built on this idea of shared values, value congruency. And let's say that you search among your values and with this next generation, uh -uh, I just don't see anything there. I don't see where I'm going to touch base with those individuals. In which case, and this is perfectly legitimate, you may well need to say, well, you know, I'm going to hang my hat still with the old guy and I'm going to have somebody else to take care of those, uh, uh, the, the, the subsequent generation because they share certain values which, and they can relate to each other. So I, I don't think that a firm can maintain those relationships, but I don't think you have to pin this down to one person is going to be able to have a high trust relationship with every single person who walks through the door. I think that's a little bit, bit too much to ask for. So that's great. So advisors and teams could rely on different people to establish those relationships, to maintain right. things with time. Herman, this has been a lot of fun sitting down here face to face with you having the, the, the opportunity to talk about, obviously, the trust mandate, the work you do in behavioral finance. Some of the key takeaways that really stood out to me is the fact that our industry and financial services really focuses in on competence. And there's a huge opportunity for us to focus more in on benevolence to build that trust. Uh, when I think of just the word in Canada, the, the, the privilege we have when we think of system role and interpersonal, system and the role is kind of well taken care of. It's that interpersonal relationship that we really need to focus in on. And it's something that McKenzie has invested a lot of resources in for our client facing teams to ensure that whether they're coming to client services, whether they're coming to the, the sales team directly, there is that level of benevolence so that everyone understands that we are here for them and we are here to help. So I thank you for taking the time. Uh, the McKenzie team is uh, has had the opportunity to sit down with Herman and have discussions and is ready now to communicate with advisors in Canada and offer some of your insights to make sure that we can support them adequately. So thank you very much and you have a great day. Thank you for your time. content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. 
content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.